All right. All right. All right. Well, they're going to miss my, they're going to miss my joke for them. Um, okay. <laughs> so today's class is all going to be about the Torah. And what exactly is the Torah? And um, let's throw out a couple terms. For example, if I throw out the word Torah to you, do you know what I'm talking about? Presumably, if I throw out the word Midrash to you, you know what I'm talking about? If I throw out the word Talmud, Kabbalah, Hasidus, Halacha, Musar, it can be very um, confusing. And then within each book and the context and the time that they're in and what they're trying to accomplish. Each of these terms that I just threw out to you represent a large body of Jewish teaching containing works by hundreds or even thousands of different authors. Obviously, we're not going to be able to discuss all of the different books that exist because there are over 100,000 books of Jewish teachings. However, we will learn about the primary books and the primary genres that there are. And that's really the important part to understand the different genres and how these different genres developed. And most importantly, we won't just be learning about them, we will be exploring them. Um, okay, so let's take a look over here. I'm gonna admit someone, sorry. Next class, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have someone else admit people into the, if you have a student book, by the way, you should also have something called a timeline. And it'll look just like that, like I have on the screen. Now you can't really read that on the screen, but it's supposed to be in the book somewhere. Anybody knows where it is? Found it, yes. All right, there's this little page. It won't be if I print it out for you, the pages, you won't see it in there, but this beautiful timeline gives you a timeline and an idea of all the different wonderful, different Jewish books that we have on the Jewish library, the time when they came out and, um, and um, uh, who wrote it and what era. So it'll help, it'll be a good reference. I, I wanna say when I was in yeshiva, um, when I was in Jewish school where we studied all day from 7.30 in the morning to 9.30 at night, uh, we had a unique class, which not all yeshivas did. We had one hour a week, only one hour a week, we, we, where we would have a class like this, not just studying the text, but understanding the context of the text. In other words, who wrote it, the biography on those people, and those lessons that I had back in yeshiva. And again, not every yeshiva had it. And I think after the years I was there, the guy that was doing it retired from doing it. Uh, but having that class really gives me, till today, an appreciation of certain books that I open up. And I appreciate, wow, okay, now I, I feel a, a greater connection to what I'm reading. And hopefully you will get this too. So that's why I think this class is both great for beginners, because in general, you'll, you'll, you'll understand the Jewish library. But it's also great for people who have been studying for a long time to give you a greater context of what you're studying. No matter how many hours a day you study or little hours a day you study, this class should be meaningful for everybody. All right. So we're going to start with the first question. And the first question is uh, Torah. When I say the word Torah, what does that mean to you? Five books of Moses. Five books of Moses. Okay. Any Anybody else? The oral, Teachings? The, the oral and the written. The oral and the written, okay. Anybody else? The Jewish Bible. The Jewish Bible, okay. Good, anybody else? An old text. An old text, okay. Good, anybody else? Right, this is the scroll. Huh? Written law. Written law, okay, awesome. All right, we're getting a lot of different definitions. And the truth is that the word Torah can be used in all these different contexts. That's why it gets so confusing. 
for anybody who knows Larry, our good friend Larry, he always gets confused. The word Torah, what is the Torah? Is it all, you know, is all these books, all those books? What exactly is the Torah? So more generally, the Torah can refer to two different things. One is, as we have over here, the Torah, the Holy Torah, the Sacred Torah, the parchment scroll that's kept in the Ark of a synagogue. We have it over there in the front. That contains the five books of Moses, otherwise known as the Chumash. Chumash means five, the five books of Moses. Um, it's also what we read in the annual Torah reading cycle. Just as an aside, how, how you know, this is the basic text of Judaism. You think it'd be very long, right? Very big, but actually it's very short. It's only got, it's got less than 80,000 words. That's about the length of a short novel. For context, one of the rabbis in the chat stayed up all night to count Harry Potter, volume one. It's got 77,000 words. It's the smallest of the Harry Potter books, about the same amount of words. Lahavdal, obviously, there's no comparison to the books. Um, huh? That's a Torah scroll. Yeah, yeah, but words are combined. Okay, you know, but even so, there's only so large. It's got, okay, you want to go with letters? It's about 363,000 letters, approximately. So it's still, it's not very long. It's a pretty, it's a pretty short, pretty short book. Okay. It was written by Moses in the desert over a 40 year period from the year 1313 to 20 to 1273 BCE. Again, 1313 to 1273 BCE. If you want to go with the Jewish dates, it's um, 2448, right? 2448, 2448. For context, context, we're in the Jewish year 5783. Okay, so it was written from the year 2448 to 2488. Okay, now that is what a lot of people say when they refer to Torah. Torah can also refer to all of the Jewish literary books that are compiled throughout history. And therefore, what everybody was saying a moment ago, throwing out different things what Torah can mean to. For example, if I were to tell my mom, you know, when I'm a kid, let's say I'm going to synagogue to study Torah. Or actually, you could tell someone that you know, you're going to synagogue for a Torah class. We don't have to actually be studying the five books of Moses to say you're going to a Torah class. All Jewish teachings are generally also called Torah. How large is this library called Torah? All Jewish teachings. How many books are there in Jewish teachings? Anybody wants Over to throw out a guess? 000. Over 100,000. I said that earlier. Good. Why did I throw out that number? Because there is a group that is collecting all the Jewish books and they are scanning them. All the books that they can find, they're scanning them, putting them on a hard drive or online. And so far, they are up to 120,000 books and counting. Now, those are just books that we have today. We know for a fact that there are many other Jewish scholarly books that have been lost throughout the generations. How do we know? Because they're referenced in other books that we have, and we know that we can't find them. That means throughout persecution, burning, and, and attacks, and all the different things that our Jews, that we as Jewish people have suffered, there are definitely more texts that are missing. So there are over 120,000 what we would call books of Torah study. So Torah study is very vast. And so it's very interesting that on the one hand, we will call the parchment Torah study. Yet at the same time, we will also call all teachings Torah. 
Why is that so? And this is because, as someone else mentioned, Torah generally means. Um, actually, okay. Let me let me actually put this out here. So this is what I was saying a moment ago. Again, Torah scroll can either refer to the five books of Moses, which is written over forty years in the Sinai Desert, or it can refer to the hundreds of thousands of writings written over three thousand three hundred years in all corners of the globe. And how can we call them both Torah? Because in a sense, as someone said earlier, they are all instruction. They're all instruction from God to us. Now you might say, I understand the five books of Moses are instruction from God to us. What about the other 120,000 books? Really more than that. How can we also call that honestly Torah? And that's going to be a discussion we're going to discuss today. How do we get from Torah, the five books of Moses, to all the other books of Torah? In order to understand that, we're going to have to start with something that we have discussed in another course. But just to recap, so far we have said, what is Torah? Torah can either refer to the five books of Moses or to all general Torah study. We want to understand a little bit more about this Torah. So we are going to now split it into two groups. Torah actually is not really split up into these two groups, which is the five books of Moses versus everything else. We can actually split it into something called the written Torah and the oral Torah. We discussed this to an extent in our in our course a while back, uh, Judaism Decoded, or uh, uh, before that it was called Sign Into Cyberspace. JLI has done that course a couple of times. Um, but we'll, we'll get into written Torah and oral Torah, and um, that's what we'll be spending a decent amount of the class on today. So what is the written Torah? Anybody knows? And the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, and the writings. That is what goes into the oral Torah. In fact, if you look on page seven, you'll see there a figure of what is included in the Jewish writings. Actually, let me get a book. I want to show you as well the book format. Forgot to get that. Um, This is what's called the written Torah. Okay, you've got the written Torah over here, otherwise known as the Tanakh, which stands for Torah, Torah. The Nun stands for Nevi'im, the prophets. The Kaf stands for Kituvim. We're going to have a little bit more of explanation of what that means. But just before we get to that, this alone has, let's see, this has got about counting the Hebrew and the English side. You've got 2,000, approximately 2,000 pages in here. Okay, so... A little bit bigger than the five books of Moses, but still the written Torah is not all that large. This is what is called, by the way, by the Christians as the Old Testament. We say it's the current Testament, but but when they say that, now you understand what they're referring to. Okay, This is what's referred to as the Old Testament, what we would call the written Torah. What is the oral Torah? Any part of Torah that is not in this. Any part of Torah that's not part of this is called the oral Torah. Okay? So any uh, teaching, any book, you, you pick up a Mishnah, a Talmud, a Medrash, anything else will be called commentary on the Torah. Any of that will be called the oral Torah. Now you might be asking, um, what's the purpose of the oral Torah? Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on that because that's not the purpose of this course, but we will get into it a little bit. Um, the purpose of the oral Torah is... 
threefold. I should say that oral Torah operates on three levels. Okay. Number one is called received. Number two is called derived. Number three is called legislated. Received, derived, legislated. Received, derived, legislated. What do I mean? Anybody here ever put... Um, or. I think like algebra, geometry, where you receive your exact, like the axioms in math, and the derived are the things that you could almost mathematically prove. Good, good. Yep. And then there's legislated with Vlad. Very good. So you have that in math as well. So in Jewish thought, I'm going to give it to you in, in perspective. Uh, everybody knows in kosher, what are two things we don't mix? Meat and milk. Meat and milk, right? What does the Torah actually say? Don't cook a kid in his mother's milk, right? That's not very. That's not a very clear instruction, if you ask me. What I would do, just to avoid this problem, I'm going to eat now. You know, uh, cow beef with goat milk, and I'd be okay. It's not a kid in his mother's milk, right? They can't be. Or let's take another example. How about tefillin? Everybody's familiar with the tefillin that we wrap on. What does the Torah actually say about tefillin? You shall bind them as a sign upon your arm, and they shall be for a reminder between your eyes. Is that clear? It says you shall bind them. Bind what? How do we know it's black with leather straps and parchments inside of it? Or the Torah says about a mezuzah. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Write them. Write what? What am I supposed to write on my doorposts? In fact, if you go on Amazon, you can buy all different types of things that are claimed to be a mezuzah that you hang up on your doorpost. <laughs> you know, made in China. Uh, I get to get these all the time. So obviously, when the Torah gave the instruction, there was a oral tradition given along with it to understand what God was saying. Otherwise, God wasn't giving a command. God said, you should write them upon the doorpost. That's not a command. Write them, write what? So when God gave the commandment, he was telling us exactly how to do it. That's what we call received. An example of this would be Anybody here, uh, well, if anybody here ever got in a car and drove, you got the stop sign. Yes, so why are you here? It says stop. It doesn't say go, right? It says stop. You should be stopped. Why do you go? Because you have the oral tradition. You went to driving school. It tells you, oh, when you get the stop sign, you wait three seconds. Not a rolling stop, right? You wait three seconds, and then you go, and you go past the stop sign, right? So there's the, the, So that is all explaining the oral tradition as far as it goes received. Then there's derived. I think Jeff was saying that earlier. Then there are principles of interpretation that have been given to us of how to understand the Torah. Following those principles, you can get to derived laws. So you can derive more messages from the same text with certain principles, just as you can do in pretty much any field of study. Finally, you have legislated. Legislate, I wanna give an example. Anybody here ever celebrated Hanukkah? I'm going to assume so, right? Did you light the menorah? What is the blessing in English on the menorah? How, what's the translation of the blessing? The last one. Bless you, Lord, Lord, Lord King of the Universe. Asher, Kirishano, Bimitsota, Vitsivanu, Lahadlik, Der, Shel, Hanukkah. What does that mean? Blessed are you, Lord, God, King of the Universe, who has commanded us to light the candles of Hanukkah. Where does God command us to light the candles of the Hanukkah menorah? Nowhere, Nowhere right? It's not there. How do we know? Well, Hanukkah happens, <laughs> oh, 
uh, oh, uh, 1,500 years after the Torah was given. Where does God command us to light the menorah? How can we honestly come and make a blessing with using God's name and say, God, thank you for commanding us to light the menorah. He doesn't command us anywhere. In fact, you can say the same thing for Shabbos candles. God commands about Shabbos. It's not say anywhere about Shabbos candles. Same thing about reading the Megillah. We make a blessing. Thank you, God, for commanding us to read the Megillah. So what's the answer? Ah, you want the answer. Okay, the answer is, and this is the answer that I like, of course, is that in the Torah, God gives the rabbis permission to legislate. God gives, you have to listen to the rabbis, okay? I'll say that one more time because I like it. You got to listen to the rabbis. <laughs> and uh, therefore, since God in the Torah says you have to listen to the rabbis, you can honestly say when you're listening to the rabbis by lighting the menorah, lighting the Hanukkah menorah, that you are following God's command. By extension of listening to the rabbis, you are following God's commandment. So that's an example of legislated. So again, rabbis have power. Sorry, the oral tradition includes received, in other words, direct understanding of certain commandments of the Torah. There is derived, we study within certain principles, and then there is legislated. The rabbis can legislate. They can make your lives harder. They can tell you, Shabbos, you want to do this? We're going to make it harder. Just so you don't mistake. You know how we you know how we rabbis do it, right? Just so you, you know, we'll make a fence really far away so you don't make any mistakes. You know, someone once, um, uh, you know, made a write-up of what a biblical Shabbat would look like without the rabbi's legislation. I mean, it'd be totally different. You wouldn't even imagine it, you know? You can almost, like, you know, go to work and, you know, whatever. There's so many things you could do without, huh? Work is another thing not defined. Yeah, work is another thing not defined in the Torah. That's a great example. Yep. Travel. Uh, yeah, great. Someone else wrote here, a chicken is meat. Exactly. The rabbis legislated the chicken is meat. Without the rabbis, you'd be eating chicken with uh, cheese. Nothing in the Torah against it. Not called the rabbi says, well, it looks like meat, so we're not going to have you eat it with cheese. Legislated again, another example. All right. So all this is to say, those are those are the three basic categories of what we call the oral Torah. So again, we had the written Torah, the books of the Torah, the prophets, the scribes. And then we have the oral Torah. I had a nice funny video to show on it, but I'm gonna actually um so i think i explained the oral torah a little bit i want to explain you the written torah a little bit so you have a better understanding so if you have the student book turn to page seven if you don't i'm going to share it on the screen for you because this is really important um unless you guys want a 12 minute video explaining it to you instead but uh i decided i'll i'll go through it myself okay page number seven I went too far, right? Of course. Uh, or did I? No, I didn't. Okay, here it is. Everybody sees it? Figure 1.3. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go through briefly. Okay, I gave you a good brief explanation of what the oral tour is. We're going to go it's in that more depth. Oh, yeah, I'm not sharing it. Sorry. Um, this week we're going to go through the, this week is more about, uh, the books of the written Torah. Okay. At, in the, by the, if you're signed up for the course, you're going to get post lesson emails. And in those post lesson emails, there's going to be follow-up videos that you can watch some really good stuff. Okay. So 
over here we have. I shouldn't ask you. Do you rather I explain it or I show you a video? But um, I'm not giving you the option. But I like the video. But so goes. Um, actually, the video JLI gave I didn't like. I found a different one that I liked better. But um, anyways, okay. So here you have. We're gonna go through the five books of the. We're gonna go through the books of the Torah, the books of the prophets, and the books of the writings. So you have a better understanding of the written Torah. Again, I've so far in this class to summarize because people get confused. We've discussed there's something called the written Torah, the oral Torah. I explained the oral Torah split up into three general categories, received, derived, legislated. Written Torah are the books of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Well, what exactly is the Torah, the prophets, and the writings? So we're going to explain, and they're very different. The Torah is the five books of Moses. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just going to mute everybody over here. In the five books of Moses, you can also unmute if you need to. The five books of Moses, we're going to go through them briefly. You have Genesis is the most famous one, the most studied one. That is, the, you know, the beginning, Adam and Eve, the flood, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and uh, the, the family of Jacob finally settling in Egypt. The book of Exodus, as it implies, is the book of Exodus. When we exit Egypt, and then we get the five, Ten Commandments, and then Moses starts, and then that's when everybody gets bored of the Torah and stops reading from there on. <laughs> halfway through Exodus. But halfway through Exodus, it starts to give us the commandments. How many commandments do we have altogether? 613, 613. How do we know the 613? How do we know? How do we know? Yeah. Told. Received. Very good. Received. In fact, there's a debate. What are the 613? But everybody agrees there's 613. Why? Because it's received that it's 613. It's a good example. Yeah. Okay. Can you imagine rabbis having a debate that? tough to believe okay the book of leviticus talks about temple service uh, or tabernacle service the house of god where we would serve the book of numbers has a more additional stories of the jews in the desert and finally deuteronomy is the last 40 days of moses life giving a fiery sermon to the jewish people and telling them to remember all the commandments as they get into the land of israel all right that is the book of torah then we get to the book of the prophets. Now, you must understand that the, there's a major difference between the Torah and the books of the prophets, and that's why they're totally separate. What is the difference? Moses had direct communication with God. It says he would speak to him like a human being would speak to another person. We can't fathom it, but that's what it says. He had a prophecy, a, a, a clarity of prophecy. And he's also the only prophet that proved himself to be a prophet. You can watch his lengthy videos on this, but he's the only one in all human history. No other prophet of any other religion has done this. That said, I'm going to prove to you that I speak to God. How so? I'm going to have God speak to all of you this afternoon. And that's what he did. No other prophet in any other religion has any such claim. There, no other religion has revelation to the entire nation. It doesn't exist. Only in Judaism. So Moses is our number one prophet, and we only trust all subsequent prophets because we trust Moses. That's why, not getting into other religions, but when other religions come along and say things have changed and we're going to change it from what Moses said, we say, no, we trust the prophet because we trust Moses. And if you don't fit in the framework of Moses, we don't trust you. Okay. But that's for another JLI course, or if you want, I can send you videos on it. Um, the other difference between Moses and other prophets, we can put it like this. The other prophets 
to just to describe the clarity of what they saw. Let's say, for example, you're sitting in a dark room and then suddenly the lights flicker for a moment. You get a picture of the room and then it flickers back off. It says that was the vision of like the prophets. They had these visions and then they had to decipher them. They had these dreams. They would have trances. They wouldn't be able to be themselves. It says when they would prophesize, they would lose their mind, so to speak. They would have to be asleep or roll around. They couldn't be standing like a normal human being. Moses, though, would be like a prophet standing in a room with a light on. His level of clarity, his prophecy, was unparalleled. And you'll see that when you read the prophets, they say a vision of Ezekiel, a vision of Avadia, a vision of this prophet, a vision of that prophet. Or the Lord came to me and said, and they have parables. Moses was like direct, you know, you, you know, there were times in the Torah, people ask him a question. He says, one second, let me go ask God. Other prophets wasn't so easy. They didn't have that type of conversation. So that's why there's a difference between the Torah and the prophets. Number one, Torah is never changing. It's Moses, the number one prophet of all time. These are the 613 commandments. There's never going to be more or less commandments. Whatever's in the Torah, that's what it is. The prophets all are there. They had a certain vision of God, not as great as Moses. What was their purpose? They were there to get the people to adhere to what God had told them in the five books of Moses, to rile up the people, to inspire them. Now, just so you understand, in the era of prophecy, there are actually many more prophets than we have listed in the book of prophets. Only prophecies that have generational messages are written in the book of prophets. It's not even a great history book. There's parts of history that it skips because whatever it tells us and decides to tell us is because it has generational messages. During the era of prophets, there were thousands of prophets. We, we don't have that many in the books of the prophets, much less. Because again, only sections of their prophecy that are generationally important for us are written in the book of the prophets. So that being said, given you a basic background to the book of the prophets, um, let us, uh, let me explain what they are. So you have the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua, which we just finished studying every uh, Saturday afternoon. The book of Joshua discusses right after Moses' death, when the people enter the land of Israel, and a couple of interesting stories that are in there, and the division of the land of Israel. The book of Judges discusses a period of the Jewish people when there were no kings yet, right? During the time of Moses, there was no king. Joshua, there was no king. And so there were judges. There were rabbis who would rule. But eventually, the Jews needed somebody to hold them together. And so you get into the book of Samuel that discusses the era of the kings, King David, followed by King, King, sorry, King Saul, King David, and all the different kings that there are. And uh, then you have um, the book of Isaiah, that's uh, prophecies. You have the book of Jeremiah, also prophecies, but more of doom. You have the book of Ezekiel, also more prophecies of the future, uh, third temple. Then you have a book called the 12, the Treasar. Those are 12 mini prophets, all short little stories. For example, the book of Jonah. You all know the whole book of Jonah. If you've ever heard the story of Jonah, that's the entire book of Jonah, pretty much one chapter, you know? So it's short little prophets that you can read all their different prophecies. So this is uh, the book of the prophets. So we had the Torah, the book of prophets. Soon we're going to show you a couple texts from these different ones. And then finally, and I got to get my mouse on here. So there we went through quickly all the different books. Now we have the writings, okay? The book of writings. The writings are different than the book of the prophets. Prophecy at the end of the day is a communication from God. The writings 
are divine inspiration, not direct messages from God. And that is why we see in the books of the writings are not necessarily messages from God to the people, but it's actually more messages from people themselves. For example, the book of Psalms are all prayers of from King David praying to God. You have the book of Proverbs. Those are parables given by King Solomon. Okay. You have the book of Job, a message about punishment and reward and suffering. It's not a, a, a book of prophecy. It's a story. You have the book of Ruth, you know, a story of King David and a message of, uh, of conversion and, and deciding to, you know, cleave to God. Again, if you read the book, there's no direct communication from God. You have the book of Lamentations. The prophet Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of the temple, his lamentations. Again, not God saying, here's what I say about the destruction. It's his book of lamentations. Ecclesiastes, again, beautiful book of wisdom from King Solomon, talking about the vanities of life. You have the book of Esther. That's the story of Purim. In fact, in the book of Esther, God's name is not written anywhere. You have the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra. That is uh, towards the end of the era of prophecy. talks about the end of the Babylonian exile, the beginning of the Persian exile, and finally the building of the second temple. Then finally, the book of Chronicles, which discusses everything altogether. So what do we have here? The written Torah really combines three different elements, which, by the way, I want to point out. The books of writings, a lot of them were written by prophets themselves. King Solomon himself was a prophet. King David was a prophet. Jeremiah was a prophet. He wrote Ecclesiastes. Esther was a prophet. He wrote the book of Esther. But it's still different because a prophet, um, only Moses prophesizes all the time, so to speak. All of the prophets have moments of prophecy and then moments where they may be divinely inspired, not prophesying. And so that's really the differentiation between the three stages of you. you have Torah, direct communication through God's major prophet, Moses. You have the books of prophets, messages from the prophets. And then finally, you have the books of writings, which is divinely inspired uh, readings. Okay, so hopefully this gives you a good understanding of the different um, books, written books of the Torah. We're going to explore them in a moment. I just want to um, actually, no, we'll explore them uh, now, I think. And then we'll get to uh, the final section of understanding how the oral and written work together. Okay, so let's take a look. If you have a student book. Just to give you an idea of the three different types of sections of the written Torah we're talking about, Torah, prophets, and writings, we're going to take a peek. If you have a student book, it's on page 30. So uh, I'm going to share it on the screen as well. And that might take a second. But if you have a student book, it's on page 30. If anybody has any questions, comments, of course, you can throw it out there right now while I get to page 30. All right. Um, so obviously, we're not going to read this text at length, but this is obviously the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Um, but I wanted to show you uh, better examples of what I'm talking about, of um, what it says. So, for example, you have over here, um, this is from Genesis as well, the first view. Here you have a Genesis 12.1. It says, God said to Abraham, go from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house, the land that I will show you. So again, direct communication from God to Abraham. But if we go a little bit further to page uh, 34, 35. 
All right, here you have an example. God spoke to Moses saying, speak to the entire congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, God, your God, am holy. Every person shall fear their mother and father. You shall observe my Sabbath. I am God, your God. So there you can get a taste. Moses is telling us commandments directly from God. And you can also get a taste that those are a little bit unclear. For example, what does it mean, fear your mother and father? What does that entail? Do you have to always be scared and jittery? Like, what, what, what does that entail? How do you define fear? Uh, what does it mean to observe Sabbath? Okay, so those are all examples of where written Torah is not so clear. Let's take a look at some uh, prophets. Okay, so let's take a look and um, I was going to look at 42, I think. Actually, let's take a look at... Um, Forty-one, page forty-one. Sorry, for, forty-one. Yeah. All right. Here's a prophecy from the book of Micah. He was one of the quote-unquote minor prophets, one of the small books. He says, "Think this. Therefore, prophesy and say it to them. So says the Lord God, My people, behold, I will open your graves. I will raise you up from your graves. I will bring you to the soil of Israel, and you will know that I am God when I open your graves and when I will raise you from your graves, my people. I will put my spirit into you, and you will live, and I will set you down in your own soil. You will know that I, God, have spoken it and done it. So says God." So that was a prophecy about the future redemption, the time of Mashiach, when there will be resurrection of the dead. Just an example, that's the prophets. But again, it's a message from God. Now let's take a look at writings. Just an example, Psalm number one, which is very famous. Here, it's not a message from God, but it's an inspirational message from that King David wrote down, divinely inspired. Fortunate is the person who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who stood not in the path of the sinners, who did not sit in the company of the scorners, but only in God's Torah. Did I tell you where, where I was? 42. Yeah, yeah, page 42. Okay. But only in God's Torah is his desire, and in his Torah he deliberates day and night. He shall be as a tree supplanted upon the rivulets of water, which gives its fruit in its season. Its leaves do not wilt, and all that it does prospers. Not so the wicked there, like the chaff driven off by the wind. Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in judgment, and the sinners in the community of the righteous, for God knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked shall be lost. We will explore more text in the other sections of, um, of uh, the courses. It's really hard to get a full picture of uh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings from little snippets. Uh, but Talmud and Mishnah and Midrash, you can, there you can get a real picture just by taking snippets of it, so just putting that out there. Okay. So hopefully you have an idea, and if you have the book, you can, you know, look at more text, or of course, you can go to your local bookstore, not your local bookstore necessarily, but you can buy the Tanakh by Art Scroll, really great reading. Uh, but of course, again, this will have only the written Torah, none of the oral, not much, there's small commentary at the bottom, uh, not much of the oral tradition uh, in there, which makes for an interesting read. Um, okay. So now we're going to get to what I started off the class. So hopefully you have a better appreciation. There's written Torah, there's oral Torah. What makes the oral Torah Torah? So I want to show you a fascinating text, uh, which will be the basis of kind of the rest of our discussion for the end of today's class. Um, so let's take a look over here. Hopefully today you understand what the word Torah means means you're confused. What am I talking to you about, right? <laughs> but Torah can mean anything. But here's a fascinating text. If you have the book, it's on page 12, okay? 
Because so far what we've said is the written Torah is the part of the Torah that was communicated by God to us, whether by direct communication, whether by prophecy, or whether by divine spirit. How about the oral Torah? Where is the oral Torah coming from? Where is it originating from? Okay, so we're going to look at a text from the... Um, Uh, we're going to look at a text from, let me just uh, skip these things. Okay. Not to show the class video. Okay. Oh, I, I could have shown all these. Okay. These are all the slides that went along with what I was saying. Okay. I got too caught up in talking that, uh, okay. All right, I got too caught up in talking. I forgot to show you the slides. All right, I'll try and do better next time. You know, the real problem is this thing was supposed to work. It would have been easier. Oh, now it's working. Oh, great. Of course, now it's going to work. Um, okay, so uh, here we have, all right. Well, we're going to go on to the next part. Okay, so here's what the Talmud says. You can see it in your book on text number six, but I'm also putting it on the screen. The Talmud says, and if you're if you're on the Zoom, I assume you're seeing it as well, right? Yes. 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 Thomas has a very interesting line. It says scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, and Agadah. We're going to explain all those terms a little bit later in different classes. But scripture, Mishnah, Talmud, and Agadah, even what a proficient student is destined to innovate, were already said to Moses at Mount Sinai. Can anybody spot a problem with that statement? Some of the things happened after. Some of the things happened after. Where do you see that in the, in the statement itself? Father just said that uh, Moses got it all at Sinai, even though some of the stuff happened in the future. Huh? The yeah. word innovate. The word innovate. Very good. That's what I was looking for. The word innovate means it's an innovation, right? That means it was innovated later. An innovation. So how can we say, as everybody's pointing out, but I just wanted to focus on that word. How can we say, how can we honestly say everything somebody's going to innovate was given to Moses at Mount Sinai? If it's innovated, it wasn't given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, we're going to add on to this. We're going to show another story. So if you have your textbook, and this one I'm going to have to show on the screen, text number nine. It's a great story, by the way. Um, let me just see over here. This is text number nine. And in the student book, it's page 16. And uh, let me go back here, uh, page 16, right? That's what I said. All right, this is a great story. Great, great story that will add on to our question above. If I can get to the right place. This is why I don't like sharing text too much because it just gets annoying, but so goes. All right. So the Torah tells us, sorry, the, the Talmud tells us. Uh, by the way, for those who want to know how long classes are, they're typically between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes. Okay. Um, when Moses ascended on high, he found God attaching coronets to the letters of the Torah. You know what coronets are? I didn't know, but I just know the Hebrew. It means crowns. Um, so if you look in the, in, the, in the Torah, in the print of the Torah, um, you don't really see it in regular Hebrew, but in Torah print, and if you look at a mezuzah as well, you'll see on top of certain letters, there are these little crowns. And um, I really... You know, I can maybe show you for a moment. You might see some of the crowns over there on top. Okay, but uh, you can pass this around. You'll see that uh, on top of certain letters, you'll see crowns. They're like three little lines on the heads of letters. Okay, so in, in, 
In the Torah, when we write the letters, there's crowns. They're not ne necessary to have the letter because you can write Hebrew without those crowns. But Moses, when he wrote the Torah, he wrote crowns in it. Or I should say God was showing him where to put the crowns. So Moses said to God, and we're back in the text, master of the world. Why do we need this? You know, why do we need, why do we need the crowns? What's the point? You know, I can read it without the crowns. So God said to him, there will be a man some generations hence, whose name is Akiva, the son of Joseph. Anybody knows who that is? Rabbi Akiva. If you don't know Rabbi Akiva, hopefully we'll discover him throughout the course, but one of the greatest sages of all time. And he will expound mound upon mounds of laws from each and every tittle, said Moses, master of the world, show him to me. So what's going on so far is Moses is basically saying, um, I don't understand why there are crowns in the Torah. So God is telling him, well, don't worry. Someone later will figure it out. So Moses said, all right, I got I to meet this guy. You know, I got to meet. Who's this uh, great sage? So God brings him in the future. Okay. Moses was sitting behind eight rows of Rabbi Akiva's disciples, but he did not understand what they were saying. So again, he's sitting in a class, Rabbi Akiva's class, 1,500 years later, and Rabbi Akiva is teaching the meaning of the crowns and the letters of the Torah, and Moses doesn't understand a word of what, he, what Rabbi Akiva is saying. And then, until they reached one teaching, and Rabbi Akiva's disciples said to him, Master, from where do you know this? Like, where, where are you getting your info from? I mean, great teaching, Rabbi, but tell me, you know, where, where are you picking this up from? Said Rabbi Akiva to them, it was a law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And I'm, before I read that last line of there, which you can see on the screen. Um, it was a law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. What should Moses' reaction be? Um, hey, I don't think so. You're a charlatan. What are you talking about? I'm Moses. I didn't teach any of that. That's not what the Talmud says. The Talmud says, well, Moses heard that. Moses' mind was eased. He's like, oh, great. All for me. But he, he didn't know it. He didn't understand. He didn't know a word of what. <laughs> what's going on over here? You know? So again, we have these two things. We're attributing things to Moses that seemingly... He himself had no idea of. And um, I, I think I wasn't sharing my screen. Did you people see that part of the screen? I don't know if you did. Um, well, oh, I'm sharing the, now the wrong screen. Sorry, let me go back. I don't know if I, I shared that part of the screen to you. So um, there you have that, that text. Okay. Rather, the idea is, as I actually hinted to you earlier on in the class, I'm going to get to some of the chat questions in a moment, that everything that we have today is based on the principles of interpretation and a text that Moses has given us. So we cannot actually innovate anything else. Moses gave us the kernel upon which all of our knowledge is based. And if we actually go out of those lines, then we're not really studying the Torah of Moshe. So you have to really stay within those lines. So an example is, let's say, a, a st strand of DNA versus a human being. A human being is an organized uh, organism, compromised of trillions of cells, organs, and limbs, and millions of thoughts, feelings, and experiences. Yet the DNA encapsulates everything that the human being is. 
right? The human being is the interpretation, if you want to say, and the actualization of the information that you can pull from that DNA. And so this is what it means. A future student will innovate, was given to Moses at Mount Sinai means if you are within the parameters, then your thought was originally given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Moses could not have come up with everything. There wasn't a time to teach him everything, the 120,000 books in the library. Okay. And obviously, of course, God could magically put it in his head, but that's not how God wanted to do it, as we'll explain soon why. God gave him the kernel of wisdom and truth and the wisdom of interpretation. And when we follow that, we can truly say we are teaching the Torah of Moshe. To take the analogy further, let's take it with a, a child-parent relationship, right? Uh, you have the DNA of the child before they're born, but it has to be developed within the mother's womb. We can say the same thing. When God gave us the Torah, he wanted it to an extent be developed within us. He wanted a partnership with us. That's why there's part, that's why there's the oral tradition. There are many reasons given why there's an oral tradition. There's a lot of discussion in the commentaries explain why God gave the Torah that way. Um, okay, I see something's going on with the uh, computer. But anyways, if I don't hear you, just send me a chat. Um, but that is, God wanted a partnership with us. And if you look in text number 10, which I'm going to say outside, if you look in text number 10, which is on page 19, the Torah actually, the, there's a, the Medrash, which again, we're not defining it with Medrash, as we'll discuss in another class, gives a parable to this. It says, um, for example, a father gave their child, he gave one child, uh, I think it says he gave them each a bundle of flax. The wise one took the flax and made a beautiful cloth out of it. And he took the wheat and he made fine flour out of it. Okay, so he took what his father had given him and he turned it into something beautiful. He took flax and wheat, made it into bread, nice rolls, and a beautiful box. The simple son just took the flax, laid it over the wheat, and that was it. Which one did the king prefer better? Which child? The one who took what was given to him and developed it. The parent, the king had given everything but the child that developed it. Similarly, God wants a partnership with us. He wants us to take the flour and turn it into bread. Take the flax, turn it into a cloth. God could have given us the Torah in a way that we would have no connection to it. But God gave the Torah, gave the oral tradition. It's a dynamic and a way that actually incorporates us in the Torah. And you can actually see this dynamic of the oral Torah even in the written Torah itself, as I explained earlier. Within the written Torah itself, it actually went in stages. Each stage actually meant more human involvement. Stage number one was Moses. Very little human involvement. Direct communication from God. But even there, the book of Deuteronomy had more involvement of Moses in it. Deuteronomy was repetition. Then you get to the books of the prophets. The prophets had to interpret their visions that God was giving them. And then finally you get to the third section, the books of writings, God's divine inspiration. And to an extent... All Torah study is a little bit of divine inspiration. God giving us his Torah and telling us the principles and how to understand it. And uh, I just want to throw out a thought, but um, I, I believe that um, uh, really as you go through the generations, the generations before us were more divinely inspired. And um, that's actually why if you look in Torah study, you can see they, they wrote more concise. I think, you know, just as in the Torah itself, you know, as it went, as time went on, you know, there's more inspiration, less inspiration. I think 
we are less, there's more human involvement and less inspiration. Earlier generations had more inspiration, less involvement. It doesn't make us any worse. If anything, I think we're, we're bringing more of a human element in the Torah, which is ultimately what God wants. The ultimate partnership that God wanted. When God gave the Torah, he wanted a partnership between him and us. If he didn't want that partnership, he would have used angels. He wanted people. And so an extent we can look at it in a bad light. Oh, where's the prophets? You know, where's the divine inspiration? Where are the great rabbis who have the great visions? Or we can look at it that we are a generation of the ultimate fusion of God and mankind. And that's why, in a sense, the Rebbe would say, you know, we are the ones that are going to bring the Mashiach. Because we are the real ones who are completing that goal. Where we feel not so inspired, but yet we bring godliness into our lives. And so this, I think, is one of the takeaways. Uh, not that I'm ending right here, but this is one of the takeaways that I think we can take uh, from today. Is um, we each, um, actually in Kabbalah, it says we each, we'll explain what Kabbalah is another time. We each have a part of the Torah that we have to discover. Just as we said earlier, every student has an innovation that he can bring to the Torah. It says not only everybody can innovate, everybody must innovate. We all have a section of the Torah which we must study and bring to light, reveal, extrapolate, become partners with God in that area of Torah. Find a part that nobody else has ever seen and understand it. Come innovate. How do you innovate? Only by studying. Um, now, just uh, there's a couple of questions. I do want to get them soon, but I just want to say one more thing based on this idea. This will explain, the Rebbe says, uh, and you can see it in text number 11, but I'm not going to read it inside. A very interesting law. The law is, maybe I should show it on the screen, actually. I could. Okay. Sorry, it's raining over here if you're not in person. There's a lot of great questions, but I'll have to show them in a second. Um, let me show you the screen. Second, I think I was showing you the screen. I didn't realize. Okay. Um, screen two. Okay. All right, so let's take a look over there. Um, so again, we explained the Talmud section. Um, second. God desired his Torah be a product of partnership to oral Torah is God's way of incorporating us as integral parts of the process of creation. Okay. Okay. So here we come to a very interesting, we come to a very interesting law in the Torah. If you take a prayer book, there are blessings we make in the morning. We get, when we build a new synagogue, we're not going to put a uh, skylight right above where I talk, okay? <laughs> uh, we're supposed to make blessings on everything, right? In Judaism, when you get dressed, you make a blessing. When you go to the restroom, you make a blessing. In fact, my son, my six-year-old, he's very into the blessing after the bathroom. So now every time he goes to the bathroom, he gets a sitter off the shelf and he reads the blessing for going to the restroom. It's very, uh, very interesting. Anyways, so we make a blessing for everything and we make a blessing for any mitzvah that we do. One of the mitzvahs is studying Torah. Now, in order to make the blessing, you have to actually study Torah. And in Jewish law, it says there's a difference. If you're going to study the written Torah, whether you understand it or you don't understand it, you can make a blessing on studying that Torah. So you can make the blessing, read some sections without understanding it, and you're good. With the oral tradition, you can only make the blessing if you understand what you're saying. So Rebbe says, why? Because based on what we said over here, the written Torah 
was about the direct communication from God, whether direct like Moses, whether the prophets, whether divine inspiration. What was important was the words of God. And therefore, the wording is important. But when it comes to the oral Torah, where there's human involvement, what's important is not the words, but the understanding of it. That's why a Torah book, when I say Torah now, I mean the Torah, Torah, the five books of Moses, we can learn lessons on each little letter. But when it comes to the oral Torah, more important is the content, not as much the exact wording. And we actually find that till today. The actual exact wording of the Torah is not debated. Can you imagine? We've been through thousands of years. We've been separated in so many places. The Torah scroll is the same everywhere. There's only one debate. One letter, there's a debate about one letter in the Torah. And it doesn't even change the meaning. It's just whether you write the word with an olive or with a hay. The only debate. Only debate. Can you imagine? We've been spread out for thousands of years. We argue about everything. But not a Torah scroll. Not God's written word. Because we have, used, have always been meticulous about God's word. The Talmud, there are debates about wording. Till today, we're not sure about the exact wording. But that's not important because the main thing is the content. The content is what matters. The wording is important as well. But the content is what really matters. Why? Because as we've been describing today, written Torah is about God's direct communication to us. Oral tradition, oral teachings is about our involvement in it. And therefore, the more important part of it there is how we get involved in the Torah, how we are part of the Torah. Um, I want to finish off with a story. Or actually, let me just finish off these slides in case there's something very interesting. Somebody gets upset at me. Rabbi, you didn't finish the slides. Um, okay, there you have it. Um, and, and, and I have to get to the questions. Okay. All right. Written Torah, we can fill the midst of learning by just saying the words. Okay. Uh, okay. All right. So I want to end off with a story talking about we each have our own section of Torah we need to study. Um, the story goes like this. There was once a scholar sitting in his own, you know, area, studying a section of Torah, and he had a very big question that was bothering him, and he could not figure it out. Then he opened up all the books of commentary, and he tried looking for the answer. And he could not find the answer to his question. He looked everywhere. He could not figure out. It was bothering him. And it was bothering him so much, he spent days and days and days till finally, one day, he figures it out. He gets the right answer. He, he studied the passage. He's got the answer. It all makes sense. He worked on this for days. And he's excited. So he walks over. He wants to share his teaching. He walks over to one of his friends. And he says, hey, um, here, look at this passage. Um, you know, what do you think about this? You know, how do you understand this passage? With, I have this and that question. What do you think about it? So his friend thinks for a moment and sits there and then looks at him and says, I got the answer. And he tells him the exact answer that he had worked on for days. Okay, one moment, he spits it out. So he was all disturbed, this Torah scholar. So he goes to his great rabbi and he says, I don't understand, you know, I, not a matter of humility, not humility. I, I am a pretty learned person. This is a very difficult passage. It took me days to figure it out. And here this guy figures it out in, in five seconds. What's going on? See, so he told him like this. He said, every part of the Torah is waiting for a certain individual 
to come and reveal it and bring it into this world. So to speak, it's a part of the Torah that's waiting for its potential to be born, like that DNA that we've been talking about. There's the Torah and its potential, and it's waiting for someone to bring it out of darkness, let it see the light of day. But once you figured it out and you let it see the light of day, now anybody else can, so to speak, tap into that energy, tap into that idea without as much effort as you had as well. And so that's really what we're talking about here. The oral Torah is for each and every single one of us. There's a part of Torah that we have to help see the light of day. You don't ever have to write, even write it in a book. Just by you understanding it, you allow others to understand. And I've seen this time and again. This actually happened to me um, in, in Chabad. We have, um, we have uh, a thing where we actually like to write our innovations in books. And uh, there was one time I was studying the Chumash of that year, and I had a serious question, and I came up with an answer. And lo and behold, I saw a couple of days later, somebody wrote it in these publications. And I'm like, what's going on here? But I remember this story. And so I wasn't disheartened. You know, this is this is how it is. Um, that's our job. The Torah is part of us. We are in a partnership with God in his Torah. So God gives us the Torah, but it's also a message for us. And uh, you can end off, by the way, looking at text number... Um, text number... Uh, 12. I'm not going to read the whole text, but I just want to say it says in that text, we say in the blessing on Torah, we call God Noten HaTorah. Noten HaTorah means God who gives the Torah. It means not God has given the Torah, right, in the past, but God is giving the Torah every single moment. Every single moment, God is giving the Torah to you and me and all of the Jewish people around. We all have every single moment the opportunity to study Torah. God is giving it to you right now. You have the opportunity to reveal it. When you study it deeply, when you innovate, when you understand, when you appreciate, when you connect, God is giving you the Torah right now. And so don't think that when you missed out, we don't live in the time of Mount Sinai, we don't live in the time of King Solomon, we don't live in the time of King David. Right now is the most important time in Jewish history. Right now is the most important time in Jewish history. And right now, we are all the most important players in Jewish history. And it's up to us to continue to study, reveal understand and learn the lessons of the Torah. Um, I'm going to get to the questions before I um, end off over here. Okay, someone wrote here, it's ironic that Rabbi Akiva was killed. Um, that's actually a discussion. The angels were very upset about that. The angels came to God and said, God, this is the Torah and this is the reward you give people who, who study so much Torah. And uh, God said, be quiet. I don't have to answer anything, I'm God. And you don't understand what I do. That's the story. That's the story. So we don't always understand what God does. That's true. Um, oh, someone wrote, it's ironic. The crowns of the Torah are made with thorns upon parchment. Yes, how he was killed. Oh, I didn't see that. Yes, that's true too. Interesting. Okay, someone writes here, the Torah says, do not add or subtract. And there are different explanations of opinions in the Talmud. Is that not violating the Torah? Good question. Are the rabbis adding or subtracting in the Torah? The rabbis have different explanations. So I'll tell you two things. First of all, the rabbis' debates are not about the commandments of the Torah. Typically, they are debates about details of the commandments. So, for example, all rabbis, a good example is tefillin. All rabbis agree tefillin are black. All rabbis agree tefillin is made of leather. All rabbis agree what sections go in the tefillin. All rabbis agree generally where they're put on. What are the debates between the rabbis? How many straps do you do? What order are the parchments in the tefillin going in? So they're just trying to understand the commandment itself. Number two, when rabbis add a mitzvah, they clearly say this is not a biblical mitzvah. This is a rabbinic decree. Then it's okay. 
But if the rabbis were to say, for example, Torah says you only need to put up one mezuzah on your doorpost, you're supposed to put up two. That would be adding to the Torah. Okay? They cannot do that. Right? If you say, though, we're giving a, a rabbinic decree, um, that is something else. Um, so again, first of all, the rabbis are debating details, not the general ideas. Uh, number two, the rabbis are never adding to the commandments. They're adding their own commandments, so to speak, if you want to say. Um, even, by the way, in the debate of what are the 613 commandments, it's not a debate whether they're commandments or not. They're a debate whether they're counted as part of the commandments or not. But again, you can come for another class. Um, someone wrote here, uh, we would have to adhere to the base of Hashem's truth. They're not going, okay. Um, is the concept of free will at the heart of the partnership with God? Um, yes, yes. If we don't have free will, there's no partnership with God. Are there dark forces every day attempting to pull us into darkness and sin? Yes, you should come to the Tanya class. Great class, Rabbi Lailatov. Okay, got it. Um, okay, well, thank you all for coming. Next week, lesson number two, we're going to do a deep dive into, that's a good question, what are we doing a deep dive into? The Medrash. Next week's the Medrash. So that's a fascinating section. Hope you all enjoy that. Um, I'm going to open up for questions here. If anybody has any questions, anybody here in person has any questions? It was all clear as mud, clear as day, clear as... <laughs> Yashikoa, <laughs> Rabbi. Yashikoa. Um, and hopefully, if you're on Zoom, if you can make it in person, we'd love to see you. I think we have a better setup. If you have any feedback on it, let me know. Yes. Clarity uh, on, on the subject, we don't need to have clarity now. Rabbinic decree 